So keep your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, as we continue our sermon series here in the Gospel of Mark. And I, I'm just continually amazed at the words of Jesus. Jesus is like nothing you've seen, nothing you've heard. Uh, it oftentimes makes me feel that our church life pales in comparison to the words and the power and the life of Jesus Christ. That the things that we're doing together barely scratch the surface of all that Jesus really is. And I shudder at how all too often there is a story in which we as the people of God have a weak faith and we proclaim a weak faith and we hurt people because we end up focusing on the wrong things. And that's what this text is all about today, Mark chapter 7. It's a hard message, but Jesus doesn't pull any punches. Well, he punches hard. He goes right for the throat. He goes right for the, the center of the matter. And he calls us. He's calling you to the heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you to be here with us. We invite you to open up your word, to move in our midst. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to submit to the scriptures and lives, lives full of the, of the intention that you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you didn't notice, the sermon title today is Religionless Christianity. Did anyone pick up on that? Religionless Christianity. I didn't make up that phrase. It goes at least back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian uh, who died in a concentration camp in, in 1945. Uh, he's probably most well known for writing two books. One is Life Together, uh, which is a fantastic, terrific classic on community life. And then he also wrote probably his most well-known book uh, is The Cost of Discipleship, in which he talks about cheap grace. It's not an easy book to read, that this, the latter one, but it's an important book. And that, in fact, we'll be... Uh, reflecting on it some in our Lenten Discipleship Institute uh, over the next six weeks and encourage you to, to uh, sign up for uh, that and uh, participate, which would be before the, uh, the 11 o'clock hour. So you'd have to just get here an, an hour early and uh, I think it's worth your time. Bonhoeffer, uh, he was put into uh, prison and uh, imprisoned by the, the Nazi, Nazi regime for the res uh, being a religious leader who was resisting the, uh, the Nazis. And during his time of imprisonment, he, uh, he began to write letters uh, to some friends. And in some of these letters, he began to muse on this concept or this idea of religionless Christianity. And the reason for it and, uh, is because Bonhoeffer was, was fundamentally bothered by the fact that the churches in his home country, which were overwhelmingly either Protestant or Catholic, was spineless in standing up against the Nazi ideology. And he, as he sat there in prison, he wondered about all the pastors and all the religious leaders and the people who had sat under the word of God and said nothing. How was this possible? And he, it, it, it forced him to begin to think about his own sense of the, 
the Christian faith. There's something in it, he began to conclude. There's something in it that's weak, that's off base. And this is where he began to come up with this concept of religionless Christianity. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 is doing something somewhat similar. He's confronting the religious leaders and all the Jews and the externalization of their faith, this focus on the outside. And he calls them to account because he's trying to demonstrate that it's weak, it's powerless, and you've got to go to the center. You've got to go to the heart of the matter. And he calls his Jewish brothers and sisters to the heart in which it has wandered far from God. I think for simplicity's sake, as we look at Mark chapter 7, there is two spiritual principles that Jesus wants to highlight. Multiple things, but I, I think you can focus our, our attention on two ideas. The first spiritual principle is this, is that dirtiness is on the inside not the outside. Spiritual dirtiness is on the inside, not the outside. Look at verses 14 through 16. Keep your Bibles open. I encourage you to follow along. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, these what Jesus is referring to is, are these dietary laws, which are found in the Old Testament and Leviticus, particularly in chapter 11, in which God lays out food that can be eaten, which is clean, and food which was forbidden, which was considered unclean. And there have been many theories of why, why did God do this? And uh, the, the particular way of d discerning a clean mammal was that the mammal would chew the cud and it had to have split hooves. That's what it says in Leviticus 11. So, uh, so you could eat cattle and deer, but you could not eat things such as pig or rabbit. And the, the text lays out a, a, a number of foods uh, that were clean and unclean. And people ask, well, what, what's going on? Why? Is there an underlying uh, reason or rationality. And my own conclusion at this point is that we really can't be sure. Uh, it's, there are different theories. Uh, I personally find them not all that satisfying. And I don't even actually think it's the right question. Not why, but what effect, what effect do these dietary laws have? I think that is really the key concept to focus on because it's the food that helped on a daily basis, differentiate the Jews from those who were not Jews, from the Gentiles. It was God's way of giving laws to his people, reminding them that they are set apart, that they are holy, that they are his. And the dietary laws served as a constant reminder every day of what you would eat and what you wouldn't eat. It was a way of bringing people together. And you, you, know, you think about food has that power, right? It creates social cohesion. It also can have the effect of disgust. So if you bring together, um, if someone goes out on a blind date and, uh, and you're a, a meat eater and it turns out your blind date is a vegetarian, you might have a hard time at it. That was a joke. <laughs> but it's kind of true, isn't it? 
food brings us together, when we have things that we like together, we share together, and it can also cause disgust in which we see our differences and we don't really know what to do with one another. And part of the dietary laws had this kind of effect that God commanded, the Jews were to follow, and it differentiated them from among the nations. But as Jesus comes, like the Old Testament sacrifices, which Jesus also ended in his ministry, the dietary laws he also ends as shadows, shadows of a former teaching or truth that are no longer relevant because now, with the ministry of Jesus, Jew and Gentile are no longer separated. In fact, Mark is going out of his way, or Mark, which is particularly, the Gospel of Mark, particularly written to Gentiles, goes out of its way to show how Jesus ministered to Gentiles. Here he is going to Tyre uh, and Sidon and meeting with a Syrophoenician woman who's a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, going across the Sea of Galilee to D the Decapolis and encountering pigs and going to different towns, encountering people who are, who are not Christian, and he's encountering Gentiles. And part of the point of the Gospel of Mark is now Jew and Gentile in the ministry of the Messiah are brought together. And so the food laws that differentiated and distinguished the peoples are no longer valid. So when Jesus says, he calls people not to those external differentiations between what divides us on the outside, but he calls us to the heart. So he says in verse 18 and 19, don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside that can defile him? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So that's the principle, that dirtiness does not come from the outside, it comes from the inside. Jesus is saying, follow the food pathway. It goes in the mouth, down into the stomach, and then, well, literally, the NIV actually kind of silences this, uh, and it's a difficult word to translate, but it means something like, and then it's squatted out into the latrine. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Jesus is being sarcastic. Uh, I would suggest to you that here in, in this verse, he's, he's using bathroom humor uh, as he sits in, uh, in the house with his disciples teaching them this truth. And I suppose if the Lord can indulge in toilet humor, why can't we? But as it turns out, when you look for, for jokes around uh, bath, the bathroom, there's not a lot of clean ones. But I did find a couple. Here's, here's one. Um, how many men does it take to put down a toilet seat? Well, nobody knows because it's never been done. Or what do toilets and Valentine's Day have in common? Well, men tend to miss them both. Uh, th this is a true one. This is true. In a men's church bathroom, stenciled over the urinals was this verse from 2 Corinthians. It said, finally, brothers, aim for perfection, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Well, Jesus' point in using this humor is to call our attention to the reality that what we eat doesn't have any connection to the heart. You can go to a fine restaurant right up the street at Number 9 Park and have a seven-course meal with the finest French delicacies. And 
What Jesus is saying, it's all going to end up in the same place as if you go, go to Burger King. What's outside doesn't defile. Here's the hard teaching. It's what's already in you. That's what's defile, defiling. That's the source of what's impure. And so look at verse 21. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. These are activities. And then he switches to attitudes. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus says all these evils come from inside and defile a person. So having an external focus, kind of focusing on the, on the surface level, ignores what's going on in the heart. It distracts you. And I think that's oftentimes why religious people tend to focus on what's on the outside, because it serves as a convenient distraction from all of the defilement that actually exists within and that you are afraid to look at. It's a challenging truth of Jesus. And I think it deals a death blow to any attempt to focus on this religious impulse of focusing on externals. It calls us to look at the heart. It's hard. But if you, once you begin to do that, there is an opportunity for transformation. But Jesus doesn't finish with his critique. There's a second, I think, major principle that we see in Mark chapter 7, and it's this. It's that outside tools cannot clean an indoor mess. Outside tools cannot clean an indoor mess. And I guess I'm partly imagining taking my leaf blower and trying to clean my living room rug. That doesn't work. But religious externals, that's essentially what they are. They're trying to deal with a heart problem through a, a tool that was never really made to have that effect. In verse 3, it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews not only were focused on the dietary laws, which God had commanded them and Jesus had ended, but he, they had added something else, and it was the requirement to wash your hands. And this was not a requirement for hygiene, which we would recommend. You do wash your hands and regularly. But this was not for hygiene, but for ceremonial purposes. It became obligatory around eating of meals, of doing services, of all kinds of daily activities. In fact, later on in the Talmud, about 20 or 25% of the Talmud, which is the rabbinic teachings about, uh, about God's law, have to do with purity codes. What we do see in the Old Testament about washing hands only occurs once, and I believe it's in Exodus chapter 30, in which the priests who are doing tabernacle, temple sorts of activities are commanded to wash the hands. And the rabbis, by the first century, had expanded this so that it was a requirement of everyone to wash their hands and to wash their hands all the time as a way of differentiating them, the Jews, from the Gentiles. And that's one of the connections of chapter 6 into chapter 7. And the end of chapter 6, we have the Pharisees who have hard hearts and who are in the marketplace. And that's when you go to the marketplace, you get defiled. And that's why chapter 7 picks up where Jesus starts talking about what really defiles you. Because in the, in the beginning of chapter 7, they talk about being in the marketplace. 
hand-washing and dietary laws got combined within the Jewish customs, elevating God's people, separating them from all of those unclean ones. And what does Jesus actually say to this focus on the outside, to the externals? In verse 6, quoting the prophet Isaiah, as the Gospel of Mark repeatedly goes back to Isaiah, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. In vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. And the more and more you focus on externals and on rules and on regulations, on doing things in a certain way, whether it's individually or corporately as a people, the more and more you are going to be distracted from the heart. And so in verse 6, Jesus used this striking word of hypocrites. He says it over and over again, more than by far than anyone else in the Gospels. And of course, Jesus can read the hearts. We can't read one another's hearts. We can only see one another's actions, so we can never be sure what our motivations are. But Jesus knows the heart, and so he doesn't hold back to the religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites which is a Greek word for being an actor or being a pretender. And so we can see that when you have a focus on the externals, it ends up leading to a practice among God's people of pretending. You turn, become like hypocrites. Everything looks fine on the outside. You can smile, but everything is not right on the inside. And here is where Christ is calling us to pay attention. Why do, why do people turn to, why are they willing to pretend? Why do they even bother? Why bother with religious hypocrisy? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is the fear of man. Fear of man can come out with wanting to be admired. Oh, he's so holy. Oh, he loves God so much. Look at how he lives his life which is one of the reasons we've talked about fasting, but it's important to keep in mind that fasting is supposed to be disguised and generally hidden because we, don't, we should not be seeking the admiration of others. Or sometimes we're afraid to admit how we're failing. And we don't want to tell people. We're failing in our spiritual life. We're doing really quite miserably, and we don't want people to know, and we're afraid. And so we feign rather than be real. Other reasons might be a, a, a turning to power. Religion is the oldest, with, whether other religions or the Christian religion. Religion is the easiest and most powerful way to control people. And there's all kinds of ways in which religious leaders can use religion to manipulate people. And it has, in fact, in the end, nothing to do with God and a lot to do with what pleases those leaders. It's a warning to be careful and of course, we're all susceptible to hypocrisy out of self-righteousness. We want to assuage the guilt. We want to make ourselves feel better. Focusing on the extra, it's just easier. Because who really wants to look at the heart? Who really wants to examine the darkness that lies within? See, you can, you can control what lies on the outside. You can control what people see but you can't control in the end what lies on the inside apart from the Holy Spirit and the power of God bringing transformation. Hmm. 
we as a people can create a culture that enables hypocrisy. It enables hypocrisy in the way we deal with and interact with one another. And when you're not walking with God or things aren't going quite the way you wanted or there's a real mess going on, there's different reactions. One reaction is just don't show up. That's one easy way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing with it is to pretend and to do the smile. And then another way is to, and this was uh, as a congregant, when I often was, was here not really feeling very close to God and not really wanting to be with people, my little secret was to go down into our church library and sit in the windowsill and look out and, and have something to read while I was waiting for Tracy to finish teaching Sunday school during the middle hour. That's another way of dealing with it. But how about being honest? How about being transparent and admitting what's really going on? After all, the church is supposed to be a hospital for the sick, not a social club for do-gooders and better-than-thous. The reality is we're all broken, deeply broken people. The reality is that if you look within, you'll find a mess. The living room's a mess. And you can say, well, I don't want to have any guests over right now. Or you can say, well, this is actually what's really going on in my life. Yeah, it's risky. Sometimes, sometimes we just don't want to admit that because we get, we get silly answers in which people give either judgmental answers or they give answers in which they're kind of glib in response. They might be right, but it doesn't really help right words at the wrong time. What do we do with people's messes if we're going to have a, a transparent kind of people? Well, we sit with the mess. We can pray into it. We can hold a hand. We can just be there and be present and not give answers. There's a time for answers, but there's a time just to allow people to be with the messy hair and the spoiled lives. That's the kind of congregation that no doubt the Lord wants us to be because we do not want to cultivate a spirit of hypocrisy. Well, there can be an, also an external focus in which it leads to another problem within the church, and it's human tradition. Human tradition, look at verses 8 and 9, and Jesus is unsparing in his comments on this. Human tradition in verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to, the, to human traditions. And he's referring to the hand washing. And then he continued, you have a fine way, being sarcastic, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then Jesus speaks, beginning in verses 10 and 11 and 12, of this practice of korban, which is a temple gift in which well, we won't have to go into the details, but it was a rabbinic tradition in which you can commit an inheritance over to the temple. And then if later your parents had great need, that whatever you had committed over to the temple could not be taken back and given over to your parents. And Jesus says, you have actually, by putting forward this human command, you've undermined the real command that God has given you. You cannot do that. You cannot make exceptions to when God makes no exceptions. And he says, you do that all the time. 
Do we do that? Have we elevated human tradition in such a way that this is how we do things and it's eclipsed the command of God? Well, that's, if you think about it, it's probably something you can easily find and detect. But there's actually another dimension of tradition that Jesus also goes after in which he is bringing a criticism to tradition, and it's this. It's that human tradition can often be elevated to having the authority of God, even if it doesn't contravene or subvert the command of God. It can function or operate with, among a people as if it was God's command. And that's exactly what hand-washing had, had become. Hand-washing is not something that Jesus rebukes and says, you cannot wash hands. He doesn't say that, does he? The criticism is making the hand-washing ceremony obligatory, which is to say it's been risen up now to functioning as a divine command. And that is what Jesus is criticizing, not the ceremony itself. There, there's freedom to, to create human traditions, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But when it becomes functionally like a divine command so that you cannot change it, you cannot alter it, you're not open to innovation. You get really upset when someone starts talking about some practice in the church that you don't think should be changed, then that's when there should be signals going off in your brain that something's not right. Now that's not Michael talking, that's Mark chapter 7, that's Jesus talking. He's calling you to look at your hearts and to be sure that you have not elevated any human command, any cultural kind of practice, which is fine and good in and of itself, but now have made it so that it cannot be changed, in which you demand people to follow it. It's easy to do, so be warned. You must examine yourself as a people to ensure that you do not allow that to happen. You often do this, he says. Well, be warned. We often might be doing it as well. The tradition of the elders, you have to look at it. Well, where do we go from here? What is Jesus really saying? In this passage, he's saying, uh, well, one is that Jew and Gentile and that difference. Those outsiders, those unclean people, and us, this pure people with our pure practices, he's destroying, he's obliterating that distinction. There is no longer any difference between Jew and Gentile. It's now, to be clear, as it was in the Old Testament, but not quite so clearly as it is in Jesus' teaching, it's now all about the heart. Your heart and God's heart and your hearts throbbing together not becoming distracted by all of these externals, which are fine and good, but they can get in the way. What is secondary can become primary. The tail can wag the dog, so to speak. And we cannot allow that to happen. Don't allow that to happen. And, and don't read me as being anti-traditional or anti-institutional. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with institutional dimensions of, of following Jesus. Of course, that's how it's going to be. We're human, We're, they're embodied. But when you entrench certain cultural practices and make them the command of God, you've gone far, far too much in the wrong direction. 
do not, and I think the, the, the calling of us as a people, the calling of Jesus in this passage is quite simple. It's to focus primarily on the heart. We cannot solve a heart problem with superficial religious externals. And it can be food and what you eat. It could be hand washing. It could be the order of service. It could be musical style. And not just classical musical style. It could be contemporary musical style. It goes, you, can, you can turn a tradition out of anything, out of any practice. So be careful. It can be about what we wear, certain rites and rituals, certain ways we, that we do things. It can be about church spires and history. In the end, it's all peripheral. Peripheral to the heart. And that is where our focus must be. And that's why in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls our attention to the Syrophoenician woman. Mark is purposely bringing up this woman right after the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders and the Jews who are unwilling to receive his message to show you that it's an outsider. It's a woman. It's a Gentile. It's someone with an unclean spirit in her family. That's the, the semantic connection between the Syrophoenician woman and the teaching on the unclean. Both are unclean. And she comes in humility, with a broken heart, but with great faith that God can do an amazing work. And so she petitions our Lord, who instantaneously there heals his daughter. It says in Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, not these, the broken and contrite heart. It was two or three years ago in which we had a terribly cold spell here in Boston. It got to about five or 10 degrees below zero, if you remember that time, uh, without wind chill. And uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a weekend when that happened because in our home, we had a frozen pipe. Turns out that the, the frozen pipe wasn't even on the inside of, a, of the house. It was on the outside of the house of the, the water main that was coming in from the street in, into our home. And this had happened, uh, we had made some changes uh, on the property. The water main had been redone and there was a stone wall that was put probably too close to the, the water main. And it, as it turns out, I didn't know it at the time, but that's what was had leading to the outside of the pipe freezing. And we didn't have water for five days. I was doing absolutely everything I could to try to get the, um, to get the water trickling again. I had a hair dryer um, on the, indoor of the, the pipe as it, came, as it came into the house. We put a lot of heat in the, in the basement in order to try to, uh, to create warmth and, and to release the pipes. Um, I went out to the, uh, I went out to the, uh, the sidewalk where here in, the, in Boston, there are the, the, the water main shutoffs and you can pull up the cap, which is, it goes down to the, sh the shutoff about seven feet down below ground. I was pouring boiling hot water down, down there. I just kept on boiling water and pouring it down uh, in, into this to try to, uh, I was thinking that perhaps 
um, at the time, there, there had been some sidewalk work, and I thought that because of a, some, uh, uh, an electrical case that had been put in in our sidewalk right next to our water main, maybe that's why it was freezing and the, the frozen pipe was out on the sidewalk. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was digging in our yard trying to expose the frozen pipe, and I went to Home Depot, and I, and I rented a 75,000 BTU kerosene burner, and I had this thing... Uh, uh, first on the water main, and, uh, and then I, was, I had dug up, I had to dig, uh, people, a few people from church saw me, I had uh, a pick and a shovel, I had to go, go through the, all the frozen ground to get down four or five feet down to the pipe. I couldn't really get to the pipe, um, and, but I still had this kerosene burner on there trying to somehow release the pipe. I then finally, uh, I put it on this stone wall thinking, well, maybe the fr the fr it's frozen over here uh, by, by the, uh, where the house and the, and the sidewalk meet. Uh, and, and I tried everything and nothing worked. And, uh, and then I got a call from a congregant uh, who's here in the room. And I started complaining about my problem. It's been several days. What am I going to do? And then he, he gave me a little advice. He said, well, it sounds like you need an excavator. And as soon as he said it, a light bulb went off in my brain. And it's like, uh-oh, maybe he's right. But that's going to cost a lot of money. And I just kind of went back to doing my own thing for the next day, trying to free up this frozen pipe. Finally, I gave up. And I called the excavator. Sure enough, it was... It's a $16,000 bill, and uh, in two days, four plumbers, a big, a big um, whatever you call those things, the whole pipe got ripped out, and turns out it wasn't one spot. The entire pipeline was frozen from one end to the other, and they had to relay new pipe, put it down deeper, put more insulation around it, and sure enough, the water line got fixed. My insurance company paid for it, and I, we waited five days to deal with that, that frozen pipe. Why? Because I was using all the wrong tools. I was using external, weak tools when you needed a deep excavator to dig everything up and to relay new pipe. Brothers and sisters, religion is weak tools. But the heart and Jesus and the power that he brings, and it's completely free, by the way, is something that you just need to turn to and you will see and experience the power of God. Lord Jesus, we cry out to you that we would not be a people focused on the outside, but Lord, that we would be a people focused on the heart, our heart and your heart, and that you would bring such an amazing transformation, that you would do it for your glory and that we would turn to those outside, welcoming them into our community, experiencing the purification and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.